You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If we haven't met, my name is Craig. I probably should have already said that. One of the pastors here, and I just want to extend a welcome to you and say it's really our joy to have you worshiping uh, with us today. We're doing a little short uh, summer series called Last Things. Last Things. And so we're looking at four sort of pillars uh, of eschatology, which is the study of last things. And in order, they are uh, the return of Jesus Christ, which we covered a couple weeks ago talked about his return. Um, Resurrection, meaning our resurrection, that God will resurrect us at Christ's return. Uh, Third in the list would be uh, judgment and then condemnation as well for the unbeliever, those who have resisted Christ and not followed him. Uh, So eternal judgment in hell, that would be the third thing, uh, judgment in hell. And then the fourth would be the new heavens and new earth. So in order, today we should be on judgment and hell. I began to study, began to prepare. And as I got into it, I just had this dawning realization that in July, we have no children's ministry for middle school, I'm sorry, for um, pre-K up through fifth grade. This is the last week. So next week, Grace Kids is back. And I started reading it, and, and while I certainly believe that kindergartners and first graders should be aware of hell. I also believe that uh, the parent should be the one who makes the decision as to when to introduce that and how to introduce that. You know your child's emotional maturity. I also realize that I don't want to speak on such a sober, uh, sobering topic and deliver it at a first grade level, so I just thought best for you as a parent and your children to be able to say that's probably a PG-13 topic which should be introduced before 13, but but it can be emotionally heavy for adults, much less younger elementary children. So what I realized is I can go out of order, talk about the new heaven and new earth today, uh, and then next week, Grace Kids is offered fully. And, uh, and I would recommend your younger children probably be there next week. And then we don't have this awkward moment with you thinking the, my first grade is going to have a nightmare or something like that, okay? So uh, that's what we're doing. So I'm going to be talking now about the end, and I'll come back and talk next week about what comes before it. I'm talking about all things new. We're going to look at Revelation 21. You know, we all have a lot of questions about heaven, don't we? A lot of questions, a lot of things we're curious about. What will heaven be like? What will it look like? Where will it be? How big will it be? What will God actually look like when we can see him? What will our relationship with other people be like? You know, we do know Jesus said there'll be no marriage so how, in heaven. So how will we relate with others. What will we remember of life here, our lives here on earth? Everything? Some things? What will we remember? Will my kitty cat be in heaven? I can answer that one. Absolutely not. Uh, I'm allergic to cats, so I don't think they'll be there. And uh, I don't think you're, uh, I think Fluffy's on the other team and will be in the other place, but, uh, 
I'm kidding, boys and girls. Boys and girls in here, aren't there? I am joking. Pastor Craig trying to make a funny. Uh, if dogs will be there, your cat will be there. How about that? We'll just be equal. We won't, we won't prefer one domesticated animal over another. When we read what the Bible has to say about the afterlife, here's what we find is that God's concerns are often very different than our concerns, meaning that what God is concerned that we know about heaven is often different than what we'd like to know. As a matter of fact, all those questions are valid that I just ran through. But when you see the vision that God gives of the new heaven and new earth, some of our questions almost feel trivial compared to the glory that God has for us. So I want to read this passage to you. We're going to look at Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. And let's listen to God's word. May he open our hearts and minds to be able to somehow grasp something of the beauty and the majesty of what's described in this passage, God's holy word. So Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I, I think the big idea, if I could say it that way, of the passage we just read is that our great hope as believers in Christ, our great hope is to be with God. In the new heaven, in the new earth, where he will make all things new. Our great hope is to be with God in the new heaven and new earth where he will make all things new. This passage is about newness. I mean, I think if we were to say, in a nutshell, what does God tell us about heaven? It's in verse 5 where he says, behold, I am making all things things new. Behold, I am making all things new. And so 
while he doesn't tell us many things that we might ask about, what he does tell us is that it will be new. Starting with, I want to talk about three new things. Starting with a new world. A new world. Look at what he says in verse 1. When I saw, uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The first thing we learn, which is surprising to many of us, is that there will be a new earth. This is the place that we will exist with God for all eternity. A redeemed earth. A redeemed earth. The Bible doesn't hold sort of the Greek idea of dualism, which is, in short is this, that the spirit is good and the material world is bad. And so death, for the Greek philosophers, was a good thing because it enabled our spirit to be freed from being entrapped in this evil body, in this bad body. And many Christians buy into that idea. It's not biblical. And really come up with the idea that when we die, our spirits just sort of go into an ethereal kind of a heaven. And yet that's not what the Bible teaches. As Aaron preached last week so effectively about the resurrection body, the way the Bible teaches us is that there will be a recreated, renewed uh, new earth that we will live on and that we will be embodied individuals in that world, in that new world. We'll have a new body that will be empowered by the Spirit called a spiritual body, but we will live in a redeemed material earth. And it's important that we grasp that because because of that truth, we know that physical things matter. This world matters. Very tangible physical things matter. Your body matters. Your job matters. The things of this world matter, for God is not anti uh, material, uh, God is, uh, made us embodied people in his world. Well, the first thing he sees um, in this new earth, this new world, is verse 2, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, what is that? Is that, is that literally happening? Well, he actually saw it for sure. But is the city of Jerusalem, this new city of Jerusalem, uh, coming down, like are we going to inhabit uh, the old Jerusalem made new, the literal city? Well, it's important to understand if you're new to the book of Revelation, or even if you're not, it's important to understand how to interpret, how to read Revelation. It doesn't read like one of Paul's letters, obviously. It doesn't read like one of the Gospels giving the history of Christ. It's what's known as apocalyptic literature. Uh, this would have been a familiar genre for them, the first readers. Uh, in apocalyptic literature, the author doesn't write things that sort of like a narrative story, literally, or a history, writing literally things that actually happen. It speaks in actual symbols and images to convey powerful truths. Um, symbol, yeah, symbols at times. So in the book of Revelation, we have a beast coming out of the sea. Well, that's not saying that there's a monster that's a sea monster that's going to make land and wreak havoc. It's speaking of, a, of an evil leader that's being described as a, as a beast in that way. The Bible speaks of uh, uh, the new city, which will have streets of gold and gates of pearls. Uh, we don't take that, not to read that. It's not intended to be read as like giving us the actual floor plan 
of the new city and what it's going to look like and stuff like this. What it's communicating is this. Things that are very precious in this world, like gold, will be so common in the next that you'll walk on them. What is more common than a street? Street is not special, but it says the very streets will be gold because what is precious today will be commonplace in the glory of the new world. So what is the, this, in this new world, what is Jerusalem all about? Well, Jerusalem is the place that God dwelt in the old, under the old covenant. Jerusalem was the city which is populated by the people of God. The city of Jerusalem is a, an image of the very people of God, in this case, dwelling with God. Now, why would I say that? Why do I say it's not to, we're not to expect this literal city, we're all going to live in this one city, the New Jerusalem. Why would I say not to expect that? Well, because in the very same verse, he says he saw a bride coming down. I don't think anybody believes that there's a literal bride coming out of the sky and that there's this big bride walking around on the earth. Again, the bride is a picture of the people of God. So what, this is what we just read. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Now, lest we think that's just a description of the New Jerusalem, look at what he says, and we don't have this on the screen, but in verse 9, so seven verses later, he says, come and I will show you, or God says to him, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So what does the bride, the wife of the lamb look like? Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So these three images are the exact same thing. He said, there's a city, there's a wife, there's a bride. They're all a picture of the people of God. We don't picture a literal bride. We are the bride of Christ, and in this moment, we meet the groom. So he's saying there's coming a day when the people of God will experience this union with God, this, the presence of Christ eternally. And how encouraging this would have been to the f- first readers. Revelation has relevance for us today but we don't start there we must start with who are the original readers who's this written to much like any letter in the new testament the book of first corinthians is written to the church at corinth well the book of revelation is written to seven churches they passed around and shared this story this drama this apocalyptic image but it's written verses chapters two and three tell us to seven churches And so they were a persecuted people in the first century. And how encouraging for them to read this and go, oh, there's coming a day when it's going to be drastically different. Jerusalem's going to be drastically different and the surrounding cities around Jerusalem. It's going to be drastically different than it is today. There's not going to be some evil people harming us. We're not going to be persecuted. Oh, just the opposite. We're going to be in the protective walls, God's people, in God's city, in God's presence. We're going to be, we're despised in this life, but we're going to be loved as a glorious bride meeting her groom, as we meet the Lord Jesus Christ, the corporate people of God, loved and cared for by Jesus, protected in the city walls where God is actually present with us. These images communicate such hope and security to a people who are suffering and struggling. So it's gonna be a new world, a new earth, is what he says, first of all. Secondly, it's going to be a new experience. And by that, I mean a new way of engaging 
with God. We're going to engage with God in a new way than we today engage with him. Verse 3. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, when you read the scripture, one of the ways that the authors will emphasize a point is to repeat it. And to repeat it three times as kind of an ultimate emphasis. So we we hear that God is not just holy, but uh, to, to Isaiah, in Isaiah, it's holy, holy, holy. And here, three times he mentions this point for emphasis that the, the glory of the new world, the glory of this new experience is that we will be with God. So he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So there's this promise, this hope that's being laid out for us today that the glory of the new earth will be that we will have direct fellowship with God. We will, have, we will be directly in his presence. We will see him. We'll see the Lord Jesus Christ in an unbroken manner with no barriers And he's emphasizing this because he wants us today to anticipate the day when we will enjoy his presence forever. We know his presence now. And we even know his felt presence. Maybe that's happened to you this morning. There are times when you just sense the spirit of God in an unusual way. So we have a small glimpse, a little taste of that now. But it's so limited, isn't it? I mean, most of the time we live our life unaware of God's presence, not sensing his felt presence. We ignore him so often. Sometimes we're just unaware that he's near and what he's doing. Sometimes we pursue him, and his presence feels completely absent from us. We know that experience. But he's saying here there will be a day when his presence will be unignorable. All of our senses, all of our beings will be consumed with the very glory and majesty of God. His spirit, his, his, his reality will be ever before us. We will not ever be unaware, forget, find him absent. Never again will that happen. I mean, these sweet words, the dwelling of God. Behold, he says, look at this, beware, behold, take this all in. The dwelling place of God is with man. And this is the longing of our hearts. The longing of our hearts is to be present with God. That's the very storyline of scripture is about the recovery of God's presence with his people. It all starts in a garden, doesn't it? And God is present with Adam and Eve present with them, walking with them in the garden is what the text tells us. But then they sin, and their their fellowship with God is broken. They're cast out of the garden. And there is this separation between humanity and God. And God immediately promises to send one that will restore what's been lost, meaning Christ. And in the meantime, what he does is he makes a way to be present with his people, first in the tabernacle and later in the temple, the place where God dwelt and his people could come and meet with him there. And then later in the God-man, Jesus Christ, 
who, who John says tabernacled among us. And so John, Jesus comes as God in the flesh. And people encounter God in the way they've never encountered him. But even there, Jesus chose to be limited in time and space. He, he became man. He had a human body. He was holy God and holy man, but he had a human body. He was only could be one place at one time. As glorious as the revelation of God was in, in the person of the God-man, it wasn't the ultimate. Jesus gives his life. He dies on the cross, uh, bears our sins. Why does he do that? So that our sins would be removed and we would one day be restored to the full presence of God. And that's what happens here. That's what happens here. It goes from garden to tabernacle to temple to Christ, and they all point forward to the presence of God where we will be with him forever. And that, this, is the actual, uh, this is actually when it happens here. I will dwell with man. God will dwell with man is what he's saying here. We will dwell with him. And this is the great hope. I, I don't know if you are familiar uh, with the author Johnny Erickson Tata. Maybe you know her story. When she was in her teens, uh, she dove into uh, the water and, and broke her neck. And as a teenager, she became paralyzed from the shoulders down and has spent her teen years up until her adulthood, I think she's in her early 70s, she spent all of that time uh, confined to a wheelchair. And she has used her suffering as a ministry. Her life is very hard, she speaks of that, but she's been an author and a musician. Uh, she's done a lot of ministry to care for uh, disabled people because she can understand uh, the reality of living uh, in an, as a disabled person. And she's written about heaven. And if you'd spent your entire, most of your life in a wheelchair, you can imagine what you would long for in heaven. But we might not be quite expecting what she says she's longing for. This is what Johnny writes. She says, I can't wait to be clothed in righteousness without a trace of sin. Yes, it will be wonderful to stand, to stretch, to reach to the sky, but it will be more wonderful to offer praise that is pure and won't be crippled by distractions, disabled by insincerity, handicapped by a ho-hum half-heartedness. Now my joy will join with yours and we will bubble over with effervescent adoration, finally able to worship the Father and the Son. For me, this is the best part of heaven. She says, it's not the restoration of my body that I long for the most. It's being before the presence of God, loving and fellowshipping with him in an unbroken manner. When we think of this great moment and this great eternity that lies in front of us as believers in the Lord, we are, we are enabled to press on through the difficulties of today because we see the difficulties of today will be small in comparison to the glory of that moment. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4:17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
this is what we long for. I mentioned earlier that we will exist on a new earth, and I think there will be continuity between this earth and that earth. I don't know what all, how much continuity, but I think it's safe to, to speculate uh, that we will work and we will fellowship with one another. Maybe we will play. Uh, we, will, uh, we will certainly worship. But the glory of it all will be that wherever we go and whatever we do, whatever street you are on, whatever room you are in, wherever you are, the glory of God will penetrate every nook and cranny of our existence. Encountering the God who made us and loves us. This new experience of fellowship and encounter without barrier is our great hope of heaven. And finally, he says we will have what I'm calling a new life. So it's a new experience, but it's altogether a new reality. The first part of that reality is in verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. God himself will personally console us, is what this means. Christ himself will personally show compare, uh, compassion and care for us. This moment, this description is the end of suffering. I mean, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and Omega in verse 6. It is done. There is no more suffering, verse 6. And it's this moment that sort of launches that for all eternity. I love the picture of the Father, this picture of the Father wiping every tear from our eyes. And actually, I love the ESV. Some translations say what I just said, that he would wipe every tear from our eyes. But the ESV says he will wipe away every tear. The image is not that he'll just smear tears on your cheek, but wipe them away, gone, finished, never to return, because it says in the same verse, verse 4, there will be no more crying. No more crying. Sorrow is done it away with. And again, can we imagine for a moment how comforting this would be to the first readers? I mean, in the first century church here, they are under Roman rule and they are suffering. Some of them have had their possessions taken. Most of them have been rejected by the surrounding culture and with very tangible suffering attached to that. They've lost their jobs, some of them. They've experienced hatred. Most certainly, many of them have known people that have been arrested. And not only arrested, but many were martyred, killed for their faith. So you can imagine in that atmosphere of fear, where you would be tempted to despair, God, where are you? My dad was killed for his faith. Where are you? My friend had all his possessions taken. Where are you? My other friend was banished from the family. Where are you? And, and what he says in this situation is there's such a glorious promise. God sees. God knows. And there's coming a day where he will wipe every tear from your eyes. Every tear from your eyes, and there will be an end to all your suffering. He goes on to explain what life on the new earth will be like. Now, God doesn't seem 
to be very concerned about giving us a day in the life on the new earth with some kind of download of it. It'll be like this. I mean, you'll do this, and then this is what will happen. Let me just give you an agenda. About 8 a.m., this is what's going to No, he didn't give us anything like that. He doesn't even tell us very much about what it will be like, and I think that's because we don't have categories to interpret it. It will be so, more, so much more glorious than we can imagine that human language, at least in this fallen world, we are limited to comprehend it. And so what he does is he tells us what won't be there. To say how great it will be, he says what won't be there. And he goes through the list. We already read it. You saw it. You know, there's not going to be death. There's not going to be mourning. There's not going to be crying. There's not going to be pain. Let me give you an illustration. Here's, here's what I think he's doing. Because we don't have categories to compare fully what it will be like, he has to tell us what won't be there. It's as if, I heard somebody share this, it would be as, as, as if you were to, to describe Hawaii to a person who lived at the North Pole and had never left and never seen anything else. So let's imagine North Pole, no internet, no pictures, no visitors, no outsiders, n- no descriptions no access to books which could describe Hawaii. They've lived their entire lives in the confines of the North Pole. No category for sand. No understanding of a palm tree. Can't imagine that. How would you tell them about Hawaii? You would say, there's a place with no ice. No ice. There's a place with no snow. It's a place where you never wear a coat. It's a place where you never get stuff running out of your nose frozen and your eyes with icicles on your eyelashes. Nothing like that. You never fear being outside and caught and getting frostbite. You will never, ever, if you go to Hawaii, you will never, ever at the beach be in danger of the cold. That's how you would have to do it. And so what he does here is he says, the new earth, what life will be like in the new earth after heaven comes down the city of Jerusalem and heaven and earth meet in the new heaven and the new earth. What he says is, here's what won't be there. And it's so curious. He starts off in verse one. Verse one, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the new, uh, first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So random. He doesn't say the sun was, well, he does say the sun was no more in the next chapter, but he doesn't say here the sun was no more, the moon was no more. He didn't say, he says the sea was no more. So curious. Sounds random. Well, he says this because in this world, certainly for the ancient Hebrews and even people in the first century reading this, the sea represented something. The sea was the place of chaos. The sea was the place of danger. For if you went out in a boat, into the sea and a storm came, you had no way to cope with it. It would overwhelm you, literally overwhelm you. The sea was the place that was a threat. The sea was a place that you were vulnerable. And so he says, listen, here's what I'm going to tell you about this place. You can't fully get it. You can't fully understand, but I'm just going to tell you this. There is not a place of chaos. There's no place of danger, no chaos in the new earth. Everything is orderly. Some of you are going to love that. Some of you are going to struggle. Well, you're not going to struggle. You'll be, it'll be perfect. But, uh, but everything is orderly and under the blessing of God. You will never be in danger. You will never fear harm like you do here. That's the kind of place that it is. No sea. 
In verse 4, he says uh, that there will be no more death. He'll wipe every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more. Jesus conquers death when he comes out of the grave, when he's resurrected. There will be no death. There will be no suffering that's associated with death. There will be no fear of death. Many of us struggle with the fear of death. There will be no fear of death. And since there is no death, there will be no grief. Isn't that good news? Verse 4, neither shall there be mourning. There's nothing to grieve. There's no one to grieve. When you think about the human experience, is there anything darker than the cloud that just hangs on us when someone we love and are close to dies and we're separated from them? Mourning someone that you've loved, that you've shared life with, that you've had memories with, someone that's important to you, someone that you value, to have them taken by death. There's nothing darker than that. And he says, that cloud that weighs on you when you say, when will life feel normal again? You'll never feel that way. There will be no mourning, he says. No death, no mourning. And and the things that are associated with death, they won't be there either. So there'll be no aging where our bodies and our minds begin to lose uh, what we once had and who we once were. There'll be no aging. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no disease. That's all a result of the fall. There'll be no accidents. There'll be no crying, he says, or pain in the passage. It's a perfect world. Think about all the pain we experience now in our souls, the emotional pain, the mental pain, the physical pain. It'll all be gone. There will never be a moment of anxiety No discouragement, no depression, no loneliness. No one will ever betray you on the new earth in the presence of God. You'll never be persecuted. No arguing, no hatred, and all that comes with that. No division, no polarization, no no pride, no anger, no abandonment, no abandonment, no abuse. No trauma of any kind will ever be experienced there. No deception, no lust, no greed, and on and on and on and on. We can't even imagine it because so much of our thought life and so much of our daily experience is is shaped by the fall. And so we can't even imagine what this would be like. But God wants us to understand all of this Uh, that results from the fall, all of that's gone. And so you will have the presence of God and you'll be perfect in a sinless environment and it will be beyond what you can experience. And this is to motivate us in our suffering. This is not so that we can escape. This is so that we can engage life with faith, longing for that day. One group of people that have modeled, absolutely modeled, looking to the hope of the new heaven and the new earth in the middle of suffering were the, those who were enslaved as African Americans in the Old South because they have left us a legacy of music, uh, songs and hymns. We refer to them now as Negro spirituals. And if you read the spirituals or hear some of them sung, what you tap into very quickly is there's this, there's this vision of 
the new heaven and new earth that many of us don't live with. They lived with this. And I found one spiritual that I thought was very powerful because it functions in the same way that this passage does. In other words, they are looking for what will not be in their future home. And I'm going to read this phonetically, just as it's written. I uh, presume that's fine to do. I'm going to read it phonetically. This is what the spiritual says. There's no rain to wet you. Oh, yes, I want to go home. There's no sun to burn you. Oh, yes, I want to go home. Push along, believers. Oh, yes, I want to go home. There's no whips a kraken. Oh, yes, I want to go home. My brother on the wayside, oh, yes, I want to go home. Oh, push along, my brother. Oh, yes, I want to go home. Where there's no stormy weather. Oh, yes, I want to go home. There's no tribulation. Oh, yes, I want to go home. See, what Revelation 21 is, is it's home. This is the place we were created for. This is the experience in the presence of God that we were created for. This is the life that we were created for. It's home, and it's never-ending. All good things must come to an end, is a saying. And everything you experience in this life comes to an end. And there's an ache when good things come to an end, but we'll never know that there. Some of you in the room right now got a little bit of an ache because we're at the end of summer. And you're going, school's about to start back. Sorry to report that. Now, there are some in the room that are glad school is starting back, but there are others that are struggling. You ever been on vacation, and it's that last day. I wake up in the morning with this day, oh, this is the last day, then I got to go back to regular life. Or maybe you're in a relationship, and it's long distance, and you get to be together a weekend, long weekend, but then you got to go back. Or some of you tonight, at about 8 o'clock, you get this pit in your stomach, because tomorrow's work, the weekend's over. You'll never get that pit. You will be home forever in eternity. How glorious is this? The new earth and the presence of God, the way life was created. This is shalom. Shalom is life the way it was intended to be. This will be our reality. Now, I said he doesn't tell us a lot about all the experiences of life, but in, the, in this passage anyway, but he does give us one very clear one. He says, this is what it won't be like, but this is what it will be like. Verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Jesus says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. What does that mean? In arid, dry, arid Palestine, uh, this would have been an image to people of refreshment and satisfaction. A spring of water in a desert community meant refreshing, that I can quench my thirst. And he says, none of this will be there on the negative side, but on the positive side, there will be complete fulfillment and satisfaction, uh, illustrated by drinking uh, from a cool spring of water. 
He's saying to us, there's coming a day when our thirst, which has never been ultimately fulfilled in this life, you've never had a moment of ultimate fulfillment in a fallen world, but then you will be completely fulfilled. Your greatest desires will be met. Every longing that we've ever experienced in this life will be satisfied by God. Every thirst will be quenched. We are people of thirst, and we chase so many things to fill our thirst. And even on our best day, when we're pursuing Christ to fulfill our thirst, he will meet us, and he will satiate our thirst, but it will never be fully satiated until we see him face to face. And he says, that's what it'll be like. So how do we respond to this picture, this truth, this reality that's coming? Well, I think a couple things as we wrap this up. One is, like the enslaved folks in the South, the vision of heaven empowers us to press on today with faith and with joy, knowing this is light and momentary, and there's a glory coming in the fret of us. We press on, press on, we, we, we seek to be those who lean on grace and persevere by his presence and his power with a vision. We can see the finish line. We know where we're headed. This is the vision that motivates. It's also a call for us to press on. Notice that he says, verse 7, this is for the one who conquers. Uh, He will have this heritage, and I will be his God. This is not for the person that just prays some prayer to ask Jesus in their heart, but never follows Christ, never has any fruit of conversion, no fruit of the Spirit in their life. No, it's not for the person that just does that. This is for the person that perseveres, that that conquers by God's grace, God's presence within them. He says it's not for the verse 8, the cowardly or the faithless. He doesn't mean that if you are wired as a person who's kind of timid and if you battle fear in in, when difficulty comes, that you'll never go to heaven. Well, no one would go to heaven if it was based on your level of courage and you could be courageous enough to merit heaven. Nobody can. This is a picture. The coward is the person that turns away from Jesus never to return. It's like Jesus' story of uh, the, the sower. The seed goes out and there are, there are some which, you know, it springs up, but as soon as the heat of the day comes, the difficulty of life comes, the cares of the world, the sufferings of life, all that kind of stuff, the plant dies. So it showed initially what looked like life, but it really never lived. That's what he's saying. This is not for the person that turns away never to return. He goes on and says it's also not for the murderer, the sexually immoral, sorcerer, idolater, liars. It's not for any of those people either. So there is an invitation here, a warning but an invitation because every one of us are in that list. There's not a person in the room that has not lied. There's not a person from puberty on in the room that's not had a lustful thought, sexually immoral. Jesus said, if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus said, if you hate someone, you're a murderer. There's no one by Jesus' standard in this room that's not a murderer, that's never had a thought of hate. There's certainly no one in the room that's not an idolater. That an, an idol is a substitute for God. It's the person or place that we go to when God is not enough. And there's not a person here that hasn't turned to something in place of God 
in our lives. So this doesn't mean only perfect people go to heaven. This means people whose identity, whose nature is not the immoral person, but someone whose identity is a child of God, a person of Christ, someone who has had their sins forgiven, someone who has believed in Jesus and by God therefore been declared righteous or justified. We're righteous, we're justified in him. We are not fundamentally the murderers, we are those by grace who have been positioned as those who are righteous before God and will be welcomed before his throne. The way to get off this list, as it were, on the day of judgment is to trust Jesus the one who paid for our sins, and you can turn to him today, believe in him, receive him, turn from your sin and look to Christ, his death and resurrection for you, and you can uh, in, uh, believe today in him and receive eternal life and experience this great vision that God gives us to be in his presence, to live without suffering, and to live completely, eternally, absolute with absolute satisfaction and fulfillment, flourishing in shalom the the way life was created to be. And if you've never done that, I encourage you to turn and trust Christ. If you're not even sure what that means fully, that's fine. If you had someone from the church that invited you and brought you, you could ask them about that. I and some others will be down here at the front at the end. Come talk to us. We can explain that to you as well. We'd love to do that as a matter of fact. So do not continue Ignoring God, ignoring his presence, ignoring his message, ignoring his invitation and his call to turn to him, but to turn. Well, this hope is more than we can imagine, and really this passage is just the beginning, because this passage just is the inaugural experience, but it will last for eternity. I'm going to close with a uh, brief little paragraph from C.S. Lewis. We have a C.S. Lewis class going on, so those of you in that class, I trust, will appreciate this. This is from the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's called The Last Battle, and the story concludes with the the children, the characters, the, the characters who have been on these adventures in Narnia, and their experience comes to an end, or at least our experience, C.S. Lewis says, of reading about their experience comes to an end, but he says their experience is just beginning as they enter into really what this passage is all about. This is what Lewis writes. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, meaning the characters in the story. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story, All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. If you're a believer in Christ, the realities of Revelation 21 will come to pass. And that will be the great story that will last forever. This is the cover and the title page. That is the story that will last forever in which each chapter will be greater than the one before. And so we close as John closes, as Revelation closes, and as indeed our our Bible closes. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.
2221. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.